long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate in American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Clemendary Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Yeah, we're back. So, you know, I've, it's been a little while since we've taken some listener questions, comments, responded to that. So I thought we could uh, get into that if you're up for it. Yeah. And, I, and I've, been, I've been off for like a month, so we shouldn't have too many people mad at me. No, no, not so much. But we'll so see. That's one advantage of being <laughs> off. All right, well, let's get right to it. So uh, we're starting with Jason, who writes, I'm concerned that despite the rule changes to the DNC nomination process, that the superdelegates still hold too much sway in declaring the final candidate. What are your thoughts concerning the DNC's process, and do the reforms actually amount to anything that will be effectual? So it's a great question, Jason, and probably a lot of folks aren't quite uh, aren't necessarily aware of this sort of in the weeds thing and how it kind of uh, applies or might apply to the 2020 contest. So just a little bit of background. Um, uh, first off, superdelegates are people like members of Congress and other party, uh, I don't know, stars, I guess you could say, who are eligible to cast their vote for the uh, for the nominee of the party in the presidential primary process. Now, this process started for the Democrats really back in 1984, and it was a response to the Democratic Party feeling like they had nominated some pretty weak candidates in the 70s. Carter. Yeah. yeah. Well, McGov- <laughs> even, even before that, McGovern. Carter right. actually at least won an election, you know, under very favorable circumstances, but McGovern got wiped out. And so this, this dates back even more because the Democrats just totally opened up their process after the debacle in 1968. And then they found like, oh, wow, we could get some really bad general election candidates and we just let the people do whatever the heck they want, especially the primary voters who are a little weirder than Which is the way the Republican Party works. You know, and exactly. And so, so essentially the DNC put in these superdelegates. Now in 20... I believe in this year, it was something like the superdelegates are, I want to say, around 14 or 15 percent of all the delegates. And what they did, I mean, the concern was with the, the Sanders and Clinton campaign is that Sanders and his supporters felt that the game was basically fixed because essentially almost all the superdelegates pledged to Hillary Clinton because she was the party insider favorite, that sort of thing. In response to this, what the party did is they changed their system so that from 2020, at least in 2020, we'll see if it goes, continues onward, that the superdelegates can't be the deciding vote in the first round of voting at the national convention, which basically means that uh, they don't have effectively a vote in the first round. So if you have a majority of the pledged delegates coming into the convention, not the superdelegates, you will win the nomination. and. I don't know that this is going to have much of a different, make much of a difference because between 1984, when the superdelegate system began until today, well, until 2016, every candidate who's won a majority of the superdelegates has also won the majority of the actual elected delegates. So I don't really see it as that big of a deal. I think that the party felt like they had to respond to the, the Sanders supporters who were a pretty significant block. I don't really see it making that much of a difference. But the issue that I thought, Jay, maybe we could 
talk about, you might disagree with me uh, on that, but, you know, interestingly, the Republican Party, they have something they sort of call superdelegates, but they only have half as many as the Democrats. And also, and much more importantly, they have to vote for whichever candidate won their state's primary. So they don't really matter in any, in the way that the Democratic superdelegates matter, right? Because they're, because they're, they're pledged, basically. They're still, yeah, exactly. So, you know, given what happened in 2016 with the Republicans and given how I know how you feel about Donald Trump compared to potential other Republicans who could have been president. Sure. What do you think about sort of the democratic system compared to the Republican system? And certainly the Republican system is more small D democratic. And I think, you know, in the past, you and I have both kind of argued for various reasons that sometimes you want less rather than more small D democracy, but any thoughts on any of this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right. And I mean, my, my typical, so often people think that again, voting for a, a party's nominee, it's, it's that it's like voting for an office holder, but it's not, it's voting for a nominee. And it's, it's sort of like voting for, you know, who you want to be president of your club. Uh, and when you're doing that, well, the club can make its own rules. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think, um, you know, the, the, the democratic approach, um, I see uh, is, so, is, so they're not required. It's somehow a travesty yeah. to democracy or yeah. something like that. I don't particularly care if it's democratic and it's, it's their party. Um, you know, and, and I suppose there was the idea of we didn't, we don't want this sort of old fashioned smoke filled rooms and so forth. Uh, but the smoke filled rooms, uh, picked Lincoln. So It's it's not necessarily all bad. So um, they pick great too, you know. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Well, I I think you're I think you're right too that that look this is to some extent it's symbolic in that um, uh, what happens is uh, um, you know Sanders was going to lose anyway. Uh, I mean, sort of they're both right. The the fix was in, um, but he was going to lose anyway. It didn't have to be right. uh, but they but they need to do something to to shore up their their party's base and and those who are uh, might be be disinclined or disaffected uh, because they felt that uh, Sanders got the short yeah. end of the stick. Well, would you like to see your party become less democratic, small D democratic? In that sense, um, not necessarily. I mean, I, I I think it's it's okay the way it it works um, because there is uh, th- there is a value to it in that. Um, you know, in retrospect, I mean, Donald Trump may have been the only candidate that could have gotten elected, right? Uh, it, it's also, uh, there's a value in that when a party stops listening to its members, uh, then it, it, it sort of, it gets itself into trouble. Um, so no, I, I don't, I don't know that it's, it's necessarily, again, Donald Trump was, was not my choice, uh, in the primaries. Um, but it's, it, it says something when you've got, you know, it adds credibility to say your uh, your nominee actually has its its own party members behind him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, you can make a good case for something of a mix. Now, I think at least historically in, in modern history, this has been more of a problem for the Democrats because we tend to be more kind of a fractured party of various coalitions, and it can be sort of harder to bring bring us together. And it's only recently it's been, we've seen it as being a little bit more of a problem for the Republican party, right? Because the Republicans always used to be much more, well, who's next up? Well, we're just going to nominate this guy, that sort of thing, you know? So 
I mean, I, I, I like the idea, I guess, of, of super delegates, but I certainly think you can go too far. I, I'm more or less, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference. Kind of get back to the initial question. I don't think it makes that much of a difference either way, really. Now, it's a different question as to whether there should be maybe more Democratic superdelegates or, or Republican superdelegates in the first place who could make a difference. And I think you can make a good case for that, you know. Uh, but you also, Jay, I think have some pretty, that's a strong counter argument that you don't want the party to kind of forget about the people who vote the actual voters. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so. All right. Um, you know, and the other, well, the other piece, one more piece to yeah, add no, to it is sometimes when you, when you have candidates uh, who are maybe outside the mainstream of your party, uh, it allows you the opportunity to grow your party. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, Trump has sort of created an outreach to a constituency that uh, traditional Republicans weren't necessarily reaching. So I think I think that there's that piece of it, too, that that sometimes if you you want to control too much, uh, you I mean, you you keep control of the party. And the party's some message. People. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, some, sometimes I think there are some people who are better left marginalized, but that's a, that's maybe Those another argument. Certainly. Yes. But um, but while there are some people who are horribles, I mean, I, I don't think you have a problem with marginalizing neo-Nazis, for instance, or, you know, folks like that. So I think we can probably agree on that. But uh, sure. but yeah, anyway. Um, OK, let's see. Matt, they should still be but, able to vote. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they shouldn't be able to vote or anything like that. Um, all right. Matt asks, what do you think is the best electoral strategy for Democrats to win back the Midwest in 2020? Then he has some ideas. Which of these Democratic talking points do you think will most appeal to voters in the heartland? He has some great examples here. A top-down redesign of the economy uh, along the lines of the Green New Deal. Abolishing ICE. Granting voting rights back to Boston Marathon bombers. Reparations. Hacking the courts. Checking one's privilege. Uh, taking executive active action to restrict gun rights. And he says, you know, I kid, but I'm seriously asking, how do you get those votes back? Um, Obviously, a a good question. I I guess I would say to start with, I don't know that there are that many votes to get back in the first place. Um, wow, I, you're just writing us off. No, no, not at all. Not writing at all. The deplorables. I didn't. I certainly didn't mean it that way. What <laughs> I mean is that there was a. I think that the Clinton campaign made some pretty significant strategic mistakes, especially toward the end of the campaign when they thought for some very bizarre reasons and some bad state-level polling, which they didn't really have much of, that they were going to not only win, but they had an opportunity to build a, uh, an historic Reagan-type running of the table to get a, uh, you know, a, a mandate, what have you, going in. And that, of course, was a colossal mistake. So I think that a candidate that didn't have all the baggage that Hillary Clinton has and obviously, you can't really think of a modern Democrat who had more baggage running for president, who didn't have the kind of hubris and make the sort of errors that that campaign made. That's not an issue. And so I see I, I see that as being kind of a, a uniquely unfortunate set of circumstances. But that being said, I do agree that elements of the Democratic Party have, if not written off, are not paying sufficient attention to some of the needs and some of the concerns of Democrats in Ohio and, you know, in other in the heartland states. And so uh, I am concerned that some of the rhetoric pushes people away. I certainly you know you see that for the left wing of the party. And my belief is that the reason why the Democrats 
won a majority in the House in 2018, and that has proven to be hugely important, I think, is because of there were a number of centrist Democratic candidates who were able to win seats, you know, and, and so I see it as being the way the Democratic Party moves forward. And so I do agree, Matt, and I think this is what Matt is saying, is that these kind of, uh, these sort of appeals that will certainly engage folks on the left flank of the party, some of which I actually maybe agree with to a certain extent, um, are almost certainly going to alienate folks in the middle and might actually lead to just being out of power entirely. Reparations, I think Matt Matt mentioned that jokingly because his comment was from I think a, a month or two back, but of course, recently there were, you know, hearings about uh, congressional hearings about reparations and nothing's going to come of that. But the very fact, certainly, that Republicans can and will use that, I would say, inaccurately in an unfair kind of straw man way to beat Democrats over the head with, you know, that's oh, going to be a problem. an unfair straw man when you have your candidates out there proposing it. I mean, well, it depends on, I mean, I think the problem is, is with the with the argument about reparations, and I, I didn't necessarily mean to get into this, but what the heck sure. is, no, it's, it's one thing to just say, well, reparations, yeah, we just want to give people, we just want to throw people at money because their, their descendants happen to be slaves. And that's one way to look at it, but that's a straw man type of argument. And the real case for reparations, which I don't necessarily agree with, is a, a much more nuanced case that you have to, it's not something you can explain in a soundbite. It's something that, that takes kind of serious, in-depth explanation, you know, and without read, that... You gotta read the whole Tehanisi Coates book. You do. I, I think you really do. And if at that point you consider the argument in its entirety with all the kind of nuances and you say, well, I don't, I don't agree with that, that's one thing. But just to say, to discard it based on the straw man argument, that's, you know... But my point being is this isn't... Uh, there's, there's the policy aspect of this. But the politics aspect of this is, it, it regardless of how you feel about it as policy, it's bad politics, and I don't sure. think you disagree with that. No, I, I my my response as to how to win back the Midwest be one. This is a little difficult. Uh, is it's the economy stupid? Um, I think that's still what what most voters vote on, um, and and I I think look if you're a Democrat and you're all concerned about racial justice and social justice and um, who's using what bathroom and so forth? Look, you're gonna you're gonna get those votes anyway, right? Against Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, but if so, so yeah, no need to pivot there. Uh, what you need to do is is say, I want to see that American workers are getting a fair deal, uh, and I think we can do better. It's it's that kind of language, I think. Um, it could also throw in some some protectionism. Again, I'm not for protectionism. Um, so like I Tim Ryan that, here. Well, it, well, I am. That is sort of the Tim Ryan. I'm, that, those are the people I'm looking at. For example, Sherrod Brown, right from from yeah. here in Ohio, um, uh, won uh, re-election to the Senate fairly easily. Uh, one because his name's Brown, and two because he's been an incumbent for forever. But I mean, he ran very much on a I'm going to protect Ohio jobs from foreign competition. I mean, it was a very Trumpian almost sort of campaign. Now, I'm not saying uh, he pivoted there because look, that's kind of where he's always been. Um, yeah. But I think it's it's that kind of message uh, that will appeal to to voters in the the industrial Midwest. Yeah, I mean it's tough because you know I agree with a lot of folks on the the left that there are some there are some significant some enormous social justice issues that we really should be working to do something about, and it's always that tension of 
getting in power, you know, you have to get into power before you can use power to do good things. And that's a, that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing to, to balance certainly, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. and it, you can too easily just get into, well, power for power's sake, which I think is sort of the Mitch McConnell approach to politics. And you know how I feel about that. But on the other hand, there's just the totally idealistic approach saying we will not compromise these beliefs. And so if that means we never have power, then so be it. And I think, well, that's, that's pretty pointless as well. And finding that middle ground, that's why I'm a centrist, Jay, you know, because I I believe in that middle ground. So anyway, all right. uh, Let's see. uh, Daniel writes, I was disappointed that Mike and most other media have seemingly forgotten how abysmal Joe Biden's past runs for president. Uh, And she includes a link to, well, the plagiarism thing. And, you know, but anyway, she says, for me, the sooner Biden's out of the race, the better. We already have a creepy old guy in the White House who makes stuff up and inappropriately touches women. We don't need an older version who's even more out of touch. Wow. Um, well, uh, okay. I lo- who's that from? I love that. Dania. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to comment on that while I sort of collect my thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I one, I don't, I don't disagree with, uh, with her, some of her characterizations, and it's kind of funny in a in a normal year again, and and you can say back when Biden was running for president in 1988, that was, those were normal times, uh, and you would say, you know, the the presidential nominee has been accused of plagiarism, and you know, gasp, you know, we can't have that. Yeah, um, the bar has been lowered a little bit now, um, and I think most people kind of roll their eyes at plagiarism. Um, uh, again, I don't know that it, it, it maybe I think this is this is something that, again, his party has has moved. And I don't even want to say move to the left because it's not even necessarily a, a change in position. It's a change in, in tenor. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that that, uh, you know, now there, there's sort of this this no compromise and the beaten up Biden for um you know, he once said he, he thought Mike Pence was a decent guy. And then he noted that he worked with. Uh, senators who were segregationist and, and now he's a horrible person because again, I, I'm not sure, you know, what he was supposed to do then and to, to say, no, I, I refuse to work with you on anything. I'll never vote for a bill that you have because you're a segregationist and I won't sit with you at the lunch table or whatever. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I think some of this is, is unfair, but um, that's, that's what it is. And also I, I think that's the media is kind of media always has these, these narratives and the one narrative, of course, major narrative is that Biden is the the moderate. Um, and I suppose he is, but, but keep in mind, Biden's also the guy who, uh, told the NAACP that, uh, uh, you know, we're, they're going to have y'all back in chains. Um, that's not particularly moderate language. Um, uh, and, so and, uh, what? Not so much, I would say. Yeah. No, absolutely. I say, yeah. I mean, I was gonna say that. See, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think I think Biden, to some extent, has been drafted because there was, you know, so many of these polls that showed he's the guy who could have the best chance of beating Trump. And I think he, he probably is. Um, but well, but yeah. no, he still absolutely has weaknesses. And some of them are uh, some of them are, I, th- I think, personal, just, you know, maybe he's just not that good at running for president. You know, that's there's sort of a certain skill set that, yeah. you know, it, it's one skill set to be a senator. It's another to have a, a president to be a presidential candidate. But, you know, I. I'm conflicted about Biden. Um, if he, I think I've said this before, I think if Joe Biden were 20 or even 10 years younger, he'd probably be, if not my top choice, he could possibly be my top choice, certainly. Um, because, you know, I think he is 
That's so a interesting. ringing endorsement. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I know. I, I, it's it's still early days. I'm kind of feeling my way still. Um, but you know, I, on policy, I tend to side with him a, a lot, and certainly from that personal aspect. You know, we've uh, you know we've mentioned before in the past. He's a he's a uh, person who came up in a very different political time, and that includes the kind of close talking and touching and all that kind of stuff. And that's not to that's not to apologize for that at all, or to, to you know push that aside. Of course, it's different to be kind of a close talker and a little handsy as opposed to being a sexual predator or something like that, as I think, you know, there have been some claims about the current president. So, but I guess I'm also, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about the age thing, but when I look at the cast of thousands here, um, you know, originally, of course, I was a Hickenlooper guy, um, right. but I just, I, I, I don't see that happening. Honestly, I didn't really see it happening necessarily a whole lot. I was kind of hoping, you know, because for the same reasons that we've talked about. Um, uh, but but the more I've the more I've heard from um, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the more I like him, and I I've listened to a lot of his stuff, and largely because here's my problem with Joe Biden. I I think there's a longing for a lot of folks in the Democratic establishment, especially the older folks in the Democratic establishment, to say you know. If we could just kind of get back to how things were when Bill Clinton was president mm-hmm. back then, that would be better. And it, it's, it's a way, sort of the Democratic version of that Republican longing for the Eisenhower, Reagan past, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that's looking back in that sense is, is a mistake. And I really feel we're at a point in our politics where we need to start taking, look, taking a look at some different solutions and maybe at some things that might even be considered a little more radical, uh, not, uh, and mostly focused on in terms of solutions uh, that would change some of our processes to make them more democratic. And one of the things that I've heard from Buttigieg that more so than any other candidate and in much more detail is he seems to want to try to make the system more responsive to the people first. As opposed to kind of focusing, saying like Elizabeth Warren saying, I've got a policy for everything. It's mm-hmm. big and it's bold. And then the first question that, you know, I have and a lot of other people is, how are you going to do that? And the answers have been really unconvincing. Whenever I hear Buttigieg speak, it, it's all about, well, before we do any of this stuff, or at least at the same time, because we can't just drop this stuff, we have to think about the ways in which people's voices are and aren't being translated into policy and how responsive government is to the people who they were supposed to to be responsive to. And I think that's absolutely the right question to ask. I think both Democrats and Republicans should be asking that question and focusing on that. That sounds almost populist. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, it it, it is populist in in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's a, I guess I'd call it a process populism, which makes it boring, I suppose, right? <laughs> As opposed to I alone can fix it. Should be no. It's like the people should be heard. And we should ensure that our institutions are responsive to the people. And I think that's something there should be bipartisan agreement on. I think too often there's not, and that the party in power tries to fix the game so that it's not responsive if they think it will hurt them, you know, as I've said before. But anyway, that's, I know that's off point, but that's why I've kind of changed my tune a little bit. And while someone like Biden, I think I might agree with on policy, 
I don't think he has that focus. I don't think he necessarily sees the current environment for what it is necessarily. Whereas a younger candidate who doesn't have all that baggage and hasn't been around for so long might actually have clearer vision in this sense. And that's, that's why I think, you know, that right now I am, my candidate is Pete Buttigieg. Okay. Hey, while, while we're on the talk, I wanted to mention something that I, I was going to mention on the, the Saturday show, but, but I forgot. Of the, the herd of Democratic candidates, something that struck me, because I know you're a Hickenlooper guy. I was, is, at least, yeah. was, at least. Um, the vast majority of the Democratic candidates, uh, you know, usually it's, it's you see a, a either a predomination of state governors or a sort of 50-50 between, you know, governors yeah. and, and senators slash other legislators. Um, in this case, there really seems to be a predomination of senators. Yeah, or 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 other legislators, as opposed to to state executives. And I just wanted to hear any thoughts on that. Well, you know, I I've noticed that too. Of course, just the fact that the that the um the cast is so large at this point, uh, you know, there are naturally a lot of a lot of senators. But yeah, I think in part maybe it's easier to run from the Senate than it is for being a governor. You have maybe less of a record. Uh, Agreed. Uh, you know, that you can kind of... Well, you have more of a record, but you maybe have more time. Yeah. You, so I think, you know, governors ha- have taken certain actions, they've done things that they are they are responsible for, and it's a lot harder to explain those things. And of course, senators have voting records and so forth, but, but I also think that uh, a lot of senators, it's easier to kind of craft a national visibility, national identity oftentimes from the Senate on those kind of national issues, as opposed to a lot of governors, unless you're a large state governor, you know, right. that sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, I've noticed that as well, certainly. All right. Uh, let's see. Do we have, um, okay, here we go. After hearing Will and Brian talk about Trump's base in the 2020 election, um, Sherna left the following comment on the website. She said, this is the worst conversation I've heard in a long time. Will <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, Will is Tune in Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> we can top that. No, anyway, um, anyway, challenge Will, accepted. Will is clearly deluded if he thinks Trump has expanded his base. And it's one of the things Will argued. Both Brian and Will have no concept of how angry the women of America are with the GOP. They literally pretend that the 2018 midterms never occurred. Maybe step out of your red state bubble occasionally. I'm close to canceling my Patreon support as this podcast is so out of touch. So oh, wow. I want to say first off, Sharon, thanks for supporting us in the first place. We appreciate it. Um, secondly, you know, I, I've always felt, Jay, that one of the advantages of having multiple hosts is you get these kind of different viewpoints. Now, I, I listen to Will and Brian's, I listen to all the episodes and Will and Brian's discussion of that. And I actually disagreed with Will on that, that I don't think Trump has expanded his base in, in any way, I mean, expanded his electorate, at least in any way, his base in any way. So, um, you know, and so on the other hand, though, I agree that there are a lot of people, especially maybe women who are angry at Trump. I don't know. And certainly I think that helped the Democrats in 2018. But you shouldn't be angry at Will. Well, 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 no, I think maybe, <laughs> maybe I think Will is, is not seeing as much of that, but I, I honestly don't know how much of that we're going to see in 2020. I certainly hope we see a lot of it in 2020. My, my hope, obviously, is that uh, Democratic uh, women who didn't vote maybe in 2018 or 2016 are going to rise up and vote in record numbers and, and, and elect 
I don't know. You know, I guess for me right now, I want to see uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg and, uh, and keep a Democratic majority in the House and, and, the, and a Democratic majority in the Senate. That, that, of course, is my hope. Oftentimes, though, it can be sometimes difficult to translate that anger into action. Now, part of that, I would argue, and this day is where you and I would disagree, part of that, I think, is because there are systematic barriers in place that have been designed to be put in place to make it harder for people at lower at the lower uh, uh, at the lower spectrum or the lower bound of the socioeconomic ladder to vote, and I think that's been a purposeful effort by Republicans. I know you disagree with me on that, and so yeah. that's my concern, and that's why you know going back to what I said beforehand, how can we best translate the feelings of the people into elected officials, which is why I have the issues with gerrymandering, and into policy, and so. Yes, yeah, sure. I, I, I agree with you. I sense that there's a lot of anger, and I hope that that gets translated electorally and into policy. Jay? Yeah, uh, well, at th- the risk of, of uh, uh, getting into more trouble, um, I, 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 I'd say, I mean, look, one of the reasons we do this show is so people can hear viewpoints that they might not otherwise hear. Um, there's the famous um, uh, quote of uh, Pauline Kael, who is the... Uh-huh. Uh, movie critic for the New York Times, who said back in, in 1972 that the, she absolutely couldn't believe Nixon was elected because she didn't know anybody who voted for him. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of, sort of you know, symptomatic here. We're in these silos, we're in our bubbles. Um, and, and, you know, we have a tendency to perhaps overestimate or overstate what we're closest to. Um, so, I mean, I, I would just uh, take a look at, and, you know, don't, don't hold it against Will. Uh, because he thinks that the Trump may have expanded his electorate. I don't know that he has, uh, but um, uh, the the idea that that something is is deeply the other thing is is if something is deeply felt, there's there's sort of a sense of it must be felt by others. It must be true, and and that sure. doesn't always translate. And I, I think this is just one of those one of those cases. I mean, um, again, one of the reasons we we do this show is to hopefully. Uh, let people hear stuff from from uh, those who they wouldn't hear from otherwise. So. Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of relates also to a comment that uh, Chelsea left on on Castbox, and she said, "You guys are so disconnected and keep asking obvious questions that you wouldn't be asking if you were in touch with the true electorate, and especially with your views of the economy. You sound like old, outdated news." And and I think, you know, that that definitely gets to, I think, in part at least, the point that you made in that you know what is the real electorate. Well, I think there are a lot of electorates. There's certainly the activist electorates, both the left and the right. And they have very different conceptions of what the problems with this country are and, uh, you know, what the economy's like and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and I think you and I uh, tend to focus more on what we call the centrist electorate. And we, we take shots from both the left and the right. And I guess the larger point I would make here is I actually think that's a good thing. Um, I'm glad that I have people on my left flank giving me a hard time and that I have people on the right flank giving me a hard time. Cause I think without that tension, we kind of lose our, our balance. I, th- I would say that's a, that's a helpful tension. If it's not, you know, if people can still find a way to work with each other, which of course, oftentimes they don't, and you know, find a way to listen to each other. And that's why, you know, I value working with you and Kristen and Will and the other conservative co-hosts that I work with, because I appreciate being pushed, but I also feel like, you know, I can learn things and that we're, we're not 
shutting off each other and just kind of you know cutting off any possibility of 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 compromise or the fact that we might actually not know the entire truth about an issue yeah so all right um and actually along this line we have one other comment for this week eric wrote in our facebook page to say i'm catching up on episodes and i was caught by your discussion about impartial reporting said, I want to point out that there are a lot of impartial sources out there, but their focus tends to be partisan. NPR is a good example as their content is middle of the road. And I think he's talking about just the news reporting. Right. But every story is about race, gender, or poverty. Now, I thought that was a really interesting comment. Um, I did too. Now, I would say not every story. Of course, Eric's exaggerating for effect here, but that's a great point Um, in that there are, there are at least two types of bias, ideological bias, you know, in mainstream media. And that's number one is in terms of how a story is reported. And number two is in terms of what stories are reported or not reported. And this happens on both the left and the right. I think we see it a lot more in cable news than we see in the newspapers. In part, it's just because there's a lot more room for more news, mm-hmm. but also because cable news tends to be a lot more partisan anyway. And so, what you see on Fox News being emphasized is going to be way different than what you see on MSNBC, certainly. Now, I have largely disconnected from that, that ecosystem. I was never really a part of it, just for my own sanity and the fact that I just don't think it's very valuable um, in a lot of ways. So I think there are fewer differences when you look at print media, you know, between, say, the Wall Street Journal and, and the Washington Post and that sort of thing. But, but you know, it still is an issue. There are some websites that try to do things, to try to counter that. There's one called um, allsides.com. Uh, and what they do is on, on a range of issues, they present views from both left and right and kind of center. They use various algorithms to determine that and so forth. And things like that, I think, can be useful. But And, and that, I think, goes to why it's important to you know, to branch out, to try to find those various viewpoints and so forth. And I'm sure you agree with me on that, Jay. Yeah, no, I, I do. And I think something else, and this is just a, a fact of human nature. And and again, it goes to both the left and the right. And also just to look, everybody's competing for the the eyes and ears and attention of, of someone. Um, I mean, I get the Wall Street Journal on a, a daily basis. And look, I'm interested in business and the economy and that sort of stuff. But there will be stories about you know, whatever corp to acquire so many shares of, you know, another corp and, you know, the changes in their, you know, leadership team or something like that. And I sort of glanced at that and I'm kind of like, you know, as Trump tweeted, uh, boring. Yeah. Um, uh, but if there's some story that is, uh, you know, again, you know, something accused of, you know, racism, sexism, uh, uh, you know, these 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 emotional hot buttons, you you gravitate towards it more. I mean, yeah. I think it's just human nature. Um, and uh, I think I think uh, NPR has its sort of set of of what it it sees as the hot button issues that are going to really click with its audience, uh, and they play to that. And and other uh, outlets more to the right have have their uh, sense. Uh, you know, it's it's more the story of you know the the small businessman who's wronged by the big bureaucratic government or the you know. Uh, veteran who's been been given the shaft uh, by uh, you know by society. But it's, so I mean it's it's but but I think that's just a natural thing and a natural bias and and you you look for it and I think he's right to point it out. 
that you can say the reporting is is even handed, but the story selection uh, is sort of you know and a lot of times sort of the story selection kind of begs the question, um, mm-hmm. and, and I mean that in terms of uh, it it sort of assumes the problem and the solution. Thank you, Jay. I just want to as, point out as, that Jay yes, always exactly. doesn't mean I ask the question or 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 um, uh, prompts the question. It means it it assumes the answer, uh, sort of essentially in the it assumes the pre- premise that it uh, it's putting forth. So, um, well, you there know, are a lot of you know. So so for example, I mean, if you were to do a story of uh, you know systemic uh, racism in in America or something, there is there is the baked into that the. The premise that yes, there is. It's not a question of you know. That's another sort of you know news trope of if a headline ends with a question mark, the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say for folks who are trying to get out of that, certainly you know, reading multiple sources is important. I I check out all sides on a on a semi regular basis. It because it's kind of I think it's algorithm driven. It tends toward less sort of policy stuff than I would like to see. Um, nope. This this will date me, but back in the day, uh, back when I actually went to check out Slate Magazine on a semi-regular basis when I feel it was worth checking out, um, they had a feature called Today's Papers. And this was, I think, just brilliant. Uh, what the author would do is every morning, he would, I think it was, it was a he, would uh, do a summary of all the top stories, all the headline stories from the front page of the morning, the, the top four morning papers. So the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. And it was, it was great. They stopped doing it because, of course, news went from being daily to being, you know, whatever, minutely or something like yeah. that. But I, I lamented its loss so much so that I actually considered trying to recreate it on my own, maybe in a more limited basis. I just didn't end up having the time to do that. But Having something like that that prevented that presented that kind of summary of the truly substantive things as seen by some of the main reputable outlets and of course the Wall Street Journal representing the right there, I thought that was just hugely helpful. Whenever I think about that, it makes me want to do it again in like my copious free time, that sort of thing. But uh, but yeah, so but it is an issue, and again, I think the way around that is to just try to engage with a lot more forms of media and try to find that one. At least that one right-wing source, if you're a leftist, or that one left-wing source if you're from the right, that you can feel more or less okay with, at least, you know, sort of. And for me, that's the Wall Street Journal. Um, I don't know I don't know how you feel about uh, any source on the left, Jay, that you would kind of be able to live with sort of thing, but, uh, you know. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, I can, I live with all of them. I mean, I, but I guess what I, I do is I, I, you know, I sort of scan for it and sort of bake in the... Yeah. You know, listen, if, if this is a story that it does have one of those hot button issues, you sort of like take a step back and say, wait a minute, am I am I being emotionally manipulated here? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and again, that regardless of the source, I mean, yeah. I think that's that's well, what I t- question what I, to ask. What I tend to do, I mean, I get most of my just straight news reporting from Washington Post, which I feel is much more fair minded than the New York Times, which really has in its language is, I think, become much more biased even in their straight news reporting. but. Right. My almost my my first news my my first move on almost any major news story is I ask myself two questions: number one, what's Vox saying about it, and number two, what's National Review saying about it? And it, it's I think that just it's so helpful for me to kind of frame the right and left view of these things when I and I can kind of go to those sources because I know that they're big enough news organizations where they're going to have 
pretty solid coverage of them. And it's also going to be from a very clear viewpoint. And I just found that to be incredibly helpful for what it's worth. So there you go. All right. Well, Jay, that I think that about does it for us today. And uh, of course, we appreciate your listening and hope you like what you heard. And of course, if you want to support us, that would be great. There's all kinds of stuff we offer to support us. As you know, you can find out all about it at patreon.com slash politics guys. Also, if you could subscribe to the show, that would be a big help. And hey, if you want to get in touch with us, mail to politicsguys.com or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We are also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.